Welcome to SocialCast, the weekly podcast talking about crippling societal issues in the United States and how socialism offers remedies to them. SocialCast publishes a new episode every Sunday, so make sure to add us to your podcast library to be notified of new content. Hey there, and welcome back to SocialCast. I'm Derek. And I'm Lance. And today, we're going to be talking about police and policing in America. Now, Policing in America has been a hot-button issue for a few years now, and it, it really started rising to national conversation level in the wake of the introduction of Black Lives Matter as a, a political movement more than just an organized philosophy. And I think there's this idea in the public consciousness that the police have always been around and that talking about the police and talking more specifically about this this idea of defund the police or police abolition work is too controversial. We see right now on the national stage this pushback from more conservative Democrats and of course from, from the right wing of the political spectrum we see an immense amount of pushback against the idea of defunding the police or abolishing the police, um, specifically because they're, they're so entrenched in this idea that policing is part of the fabric of American society. I think that what you said about the Black Lives Matter movement, to talk about the relationship between Black Lives Matter as a, a coherent social movement, specifically started by Alicia Garza, is important to an extent, and we also need to look at other instances in our recent history before that incarnation of the social movement, and other times that we have witnessed targeted police brutality against communities and people of color in America, specifically the LA riots. There was a series of riots that happened in Detroit in the 70s that was also just a huge turning point for policing in America. And this is all not talking about things like the Philadelphia bombing, where in 1985, the city of Philadelphia and its police department bombed a residence that was occupied by members of MOVE, M-O-V-E, which was a black liberation group. They used Tovex and C4 explosives, which ended up leveling almost two city blocks. And in addition to that, which is relatively recent, and honestly, I'm not sure why it's not a bigger part of this conversation, but even further back before that, we have the Tulsa massacre. There was a thriving and affluent black community in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that was becoming a serious threat in competition to the white financial industries. And it was literally burned. And also and bombed. And bombed. By plane. And, and that's a really integral part of understanding kind of the continuously adversarial role that the police play in American society. Because we know about Tulsa, 
but there's also Rosewood in Florida, an entire town that was run out because black people were building wealth for themselves. This this really isn't a, a new phenomenon. And I, I think that really goes back to the the roots of policing in America. So let's let's look at those roots. Let's talk about how policing started in this country, how it has evolved in the intervening time and and take a closer look at how we got to where we are today. So let's talk about where the police started. The origins of police in America can loosely be traced back to the night watchmen and guards of cities such as New York, Boston, Philadelphia, where they would appoint people, um, sometimes against their will, to keep guard overnight while the rest of the people would sleep in their homes. Um, this was largely to control illicit industries such as uh, prostitution and gambling, and then as things progressed, other crimes fell under that umbrella of supervision. So I want to I want to talk about how things progressed. So what Lance is talking about that night watch program started in the mid seventeenth century, and he's absolutely right. A lot of the people who participated in the night watch were people who had been forced into it, coerced into it by by public officials. And there were another group of people that were trying to dodge military service that joined the night watch. And those, those two groups, first of all, were frequently drunk while they were trying to do their job taking care of the city in the nighttime. But it wasn't until the early 19th century that we really started seeing an expansion of the idea of the night watch. And that's when cities like New York and Philadelphia started instituting a day watch as well. And in, in 1838, Boston created the first kind of modern American police force. It was an idea that quickly gained traction and by about the 1880s, pretty much every major city in the country had a police force similar to what we know the police to be today. The, the only major exception being the southern states where the police forces were built off of the remnants of slave patrols really. And what, what we know of as modern policing was really a response to disorder due to increasingly rapid urbanization in northern cities because after the, the 13th Amendment was passed and slavery was outlawed, what we saw was a, an exodus of black Americans from the southern states who had formerly been held captive as slaves, moving north out of that, that environment that was still thick with racial sentiment and moving into cities like New York and Detroit and Philadelphia and Boston and the introduction of this bureaucratic police force was a response to disorder during all of that. Not necessarily lawlessness. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence 
saying that the creation of the police was a response to a, a crime wave in Boston. But the only crime that was happening was violence perpetrated by white youth against immigrant communities and against black Americans that had moved north after the, the passing of the 13th Amendment. The most important part of this little snippet of American history is that what was defined as disorder was determined by capitalists. They poured money and influence into supporting the development of this bureaucratic police force, something that was more codified and structured than anything that we had seen in this country before other than the military. In this way, Capitalists were infinitely more focused on social control than they were on controlling crime. And by focusing on flipping the narrative into it being a response to crime, it allowed the perception of police upholding laws to be born and gain traction with the public, despite the fact that those with economic power were the ones determining how to best implement the police force. Defining social control as crime control worked by creating this myth of dangerous classes, people who were seen as either biologically or morally inferior. And the vision of them as the progenitors of criminal activity, including political protest, workers' riots, what they referred to as hooliganism, and the most common quote-unquote crime was public drunkenness which was a phenomenon that didn't really exist until capitalists started creating venues that encouraged the public sale and consumption of alcohol. Two things to mention towards how the capitalists, and when I use that term, I mean the people who actually possess the wealth and the capital, not people who willingly contribute their time and labor to capitalist endeavors. Those are not capitalists. We're talking about the actual owners when it was still the night watch and it was still you know old greg up in the bell tower with a lantern looking out over the town um what often happened was the the wealthy the capitalists the owners so what often happened in that period was specifically in, in jurisdictions that had compulsory participation in these night watches, the wealthy, the owners, the capitalists, they would simply pay other people to do their service and to do their shift for them. So they never actually had to do the work. And at the same time that that is a, a very real fact of the night watch, there were independent organizations of people. Probably the most recognizable historically would be the Pinkerton Guards. And they were, they were basically small militias that were available for hire. And the capitalist class could engage them for protection from actual criminal activity. So things like theft or murder, what have you. So there's, there's this kind of give and take between public and private police forces at the the turn of the 19th centuries that contributed substantially to the development of the the modern police force and i think the other side to that coin is like you touched on earlier is how so much of our criminal code is determined by capitalists 
if you look at the actual work being done by police today, by police 20 years ago, by police 50 years ago, the bulk of what they're responding to are property crimes, which are crimes involving money or the things that can make money. So when you talk about theft, you talk about stealing something that doesn't belong to you, that you didn't quote-unquote earn, and that by not having the person that is stolen from may not have as much opportunity to produce money for themselves or for an employer. And you see crimes involving trespassing, or the, I should say you, sh you see crimes such as trespassing, which is literally just being present on someone else's property without their consent. Which, yes, there is a valid point to you should have a space that is secure, it is your own, and that cannot be infringed upon. But there's also the idea that, you know, if a space is unoccupied and unused and someone needs shelter, why can that person not be in that unused space? And you see you see so much police response to these sorts of crimes versus crimes involving actual violent physical harm to other people. And, and that also gets back to the root of how the police work, and that is that they are a responsive agency. Police can't prevent anything because they don't work preemptively. They work as a response to either being called or when they anticipate something happening, they respond to it. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point about the police being a responsive agency because we have seen study after study after study by independent organizations, by educational organizations, by citizen organizations that, that detail the simple fact that the existence of a police present doesn't deter crime that was already going to happen. If, if somebody's planning to, to rob a convenience store and there happens to be a cop a block away, that convenience store is still going to get robbed because the police don't work as as a diffusing force. They don't do anything to stop crime. Well, and also as we mentioned in our last podcast about crime and criminal justice, Crime stems from a perception of need, and when someone perceives that they need something, whether that's money or food or what have you, they're going to do what it takes to get what they need. That is the driving human nature. And you can have 50 cops, as you said, you can have a cop a block away. You can have 50 cops a block away. If that person is in that moment and they see the opportunity and they see the need, they're going to do it regardless of whether cops are nearby, regardless of whether they're 10 miles away. Absolutely. And this is, this is where our conversations about policing today in, in 2020, the end of 2020, really link back to the origins of policing because we're still in that place, first of all, where capitalists are the ones defining the function of the police. Capitalists either are in office making laws or they are, as we talked about in our last episode, they're bribing political officials to create legislation that protects them. And when, when we are talking about a 
an organization that exists solely to prevent the the types of crimes that we're talking about property crimes or what we're talking about is still an organization that exists to exert social control the the ultimate and most simplest basis is we want people to behave this way and this is how we're going to make them do it absolutely and we don't have to look very hard to find examples of that examples of that exist in drug law where we are again criminalizing mental illness but the police response to that is not about treating that mental illness but about controlling that mental illness if it were about treating it what we would see is is the type of robust system that Oregon has started taking steps towards in decriminalizing possession of substances and referring people to treatment facilities instead of putting them in prison. And I think another thing to mention regarding specifically drug use and drug laws is, again, police do nothing to prevent this. There's, there's really no incentive to not be using drugs in the sense of the illicit street drugs that are currently illegal. Well, and even if we're not looking at, at behavior that is changeable through whatever means, there's the history of policing that we can fall back on. So if you look back to the 60s and the Stonewall riots, the Stonewall riots were a response to police trying to enforce this idea of heterosexuality. So you can't change the fact that people are gay. They're just gay. No amount of policing is going to change that. And that, again, it's, it's all about social control. It's not about responding to an actual crime. It's about somebody saying, this behavior isn't acceptable, and so you can't do it. And I think that touches on another thing that's very important to this discussion, and that is that the same people who are directing the police and the same people who are creating these laws that are to be upheld by the police are also the same ones telling us that what is illegal is wrong. What is legal is right. That's morally fine. And what is illegal is morally wrong. And so what we decide is now illegal, homosexuality, a male dressing in women's clothing, these things have all been illegal, not in the distant past. Sodomy was illegal in the state of Texas until 2008, but these are not things that are wrong. They're not morally bankrupt. They're not morally wrong. These are just the way people exist. And to, to build off that idea of morality, looking again, and I talk about this a lot, but looking again at addiction disorder, there's nothing immoral about mental illness. But by criminalizing it and, and using the police to enforce laws that really don't make any sense, we are taught to look at that thing, that, that mental illness of addiction disorder, we're taught to look at it as something that is morally reprehensible. We, we are supposed to look at the people who have succumbed to addiction with disdain because they are morally inferior to people who don't use drugs. It goes the other way, too, where obviously moral behavior that has been criminalized is 
engineered to be looked down upon. If you want to continue in this model, you look back at World War II Germany and you look at the Holocaust. Hiding Jewish people was a crime. Being Jewish was a crime. Was it? Were these things wrong? Absolutely not. Were the laws moral? Absolutely, Absolutely not. not. So you see where you know this this group of of wealthy elites of capitalists is saying the laws that are enforced by the police are the morally just ethical code of our society and everyone needs to agree to that or everything will crumble and fall apart and then they enact these depraved immoral laws and continue that narrative of saying the laws we pass are morally good and then they're not but the police are still upholding those laws and so this narrative of oh the police are supporting law and order the police are supporting good and, and morally just behavior you start seeing the police enforcing these horrific unjustifiable laws and that's how a lot of the tragedies of the Holocaust came to pass. So since you just mentioned this idea of law and order, I, I, I want to talk for just a really brief moment about how within the confines of American society, this call for law and order, this reliance on the police to enforce laws and create order is really a, a dog whistle that right-wing and now centrist Democrats are using to enforce these ideas of social order, these these concepts of, you know what, these people shouldn't be in the streets protesting in police brutality against against black people. They shouldn't be having riots because the police killed another unarmed or innocent black person. It's, it's a dog whistle. It's a way for politicians to signal to both other politicians and to people that rely on this social order for, for their continued existence, really. It's a way for them to signal that they are also interested in maintaining the social order. And that social order is undermined by labor movements. It's undermined by movements for social justice. So when we're when we're talking about this idea of enforcing social order, there are myriad examples throughout history of, of that social order being undermined. Suffragettes are a perfect example. When women were going around the country bombing buildings and, and politicians' homes so that women could get the right to vote. The, the civil rights movement was a huge blow to the established social order. So were the Stonewall riots. So have been all of the, the Black Lives Matter protests and riots in response to police brutality. So thank you, Lance, for bringing that up. You're welcome. So one, one more slightly historic note that it would be irresponsible of us to not talk about while we're talking about the evolution of policing in America is the fact that from the very beginning of, of the Night Watch and, and the, the birth of modern policing in Boston in the mid-19th century, cops have always been more than willing to accept bribes to overlook activity that was listed as criminal. We saw this a, a ton during Prohibition. 
cops were constantly accepting bribes to overlook people transporting alcohol across the country when alcohol was deemed illegal. Constitutionally illegal. Constitutionally <laughs> illegal. And and that is 100% something that continues to this day. And we see that in... in we see that manifest in police unions and police associations accepting donations, again, bribes, from these moneyed interests to to continue doing the things that, that they're doing in the face of adversity and pushback from the public. While talking about moments in the history of the evolution of police, um, we also are really obligated to look specifically at the 2001 legislative measure known as the Patriot Act, signed into law by George W. Bush and then renewed by Barack Obama. And it was passed as a response to the September 11th terrorist attacks of that year of 2001, leading up to our military response to those events. And what happened as a result of the Patriot Act was this enormous well of money suddenly came into existence that was made available to local police forces with the very broadly interpreted caveat of if this is, you know, if your agency is fighting terrorism and this expense is related to fighting terrorism, you can use this money to make your purchases. And this resulted in larger police bureaus, more actual police officers were added to the payroll, more advanced guns and ammunition were acquired. And in many of our, I don't even want to say our larger cities, but even our mid-size and, and smaller larger cities, they were able to purchase armored troop carriers. They were able to purchase things that basically amount to tanks and use these in day-to-day -day police efforts. You know, the, these are clearly not being used in counterterrorism or as a response to terrorism. Salem, Oregon has not been victim of a terrorist attack. Kent, Washington has never been victim of a terrorist attack, and yet these police forces of these mid-sized cities have these incredible pieces of technology and these pieces of warfare that up until this point we did not see outside of the battlefield. These were weapons of war, engines of war, that were brought literally from the battlefield in some cases where either the battlefield had progressed to a point where they did not need them, and they were resold to local police departments, or just, you know, this is an item that is more often used by military forces, and it's now available to police. And we continue seeing an industry that has cropped up around this idea of, of the militarization of police. Just a couple of weeks ago, I learned of a company in Florida that takes bobcat tractors. <laughs> and turns them into armored response vehicles. They, they come with all manner of, frankly, terrifying attachments to protect police officers and allow them to attack people while being protected. And it's, it's this hyper-militaristic vehicle that local municipalities can buy for $250,000. I mean, there was also the, the sonic cannon 
The noise cannons? Yes, that were used um, during the Portland BLM protests, that were used on just regular people. And these are weapons that are, are rarely used in the battlefield because they are very much considered not appropriate in the global theater and the global opinion on what is acceptable in warfare. This device is not really considered useful, or not, I shouldn't say it's not considered useful. It's not considered appropriate to military engagement because it, it doesn't eliminate the target, so it's not really accomplishing something there. It's just causing pain and agony in the target, which if, if that's what the intent is, is to cause pain and agony, why are we using this on American citizens? Well, and the same argument can be made against uh, tear gas. Which is banned by the Geneva Convention. Absolutely. The the kinds of gases that we saw deployed widely across the country during the BLM protests this year, is they're banned on the field of war. They are, if you use them against an opposing military force, you are committing a war crime. And they are put to use against American citizens. Why? Why? Regularly. 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 So before we move past the the history and the evolution of policing in America, there's a really important kind of tertiary component to to discuss, and that is the role that the media plays in desensitizing us to the destructive nature of the police. And that is done not only through daily news broadcasts, but through actual story media. Everybody knows of, of Law and Order. Everybody knows NYPD Blue. There are fistfuls of examples of, of movies and television shows that glorify and really elevate this idea of the police as the, the thing that is keeping society from falling apart around us. And it's, it's a very irresponsible narrative to to perpetuate because there are so many ways in which the police historically have been misused to to subjugate people they've been misused to keep people from from living their lives and they've been misused to enforce laws that are morally abhorrent and one perfect example of of police enforcing immoral laws pertains specifically to the theft of food because capitalists have have advocated for this idea that stealing food is wrong because it steals profits from them but when you're looking at something that doesn't exist in a moral vacuum and you've got on one hand this concept of stealing is immoral and then on the other hand, you've got this concept of letting people starve to death when you have the means to solve it, but you refuse to because they can't give you money in exchange for food. Which one of those two things is more morally objectionable? Because for me, it's going to be letting people it's, starve it's for no reason. It's the refusing to feed people for me. So, what's the world look like without police? Chaos, anarchy, mayhem, 
That's the, the that, fairly no. stereotypical yeah. right-wing response. But those are responses from people that haven't looked into what police abolition looks like. They're responses from people that are solely reactionary. They're not based in education. They're not based in data. They're not based in science and studies. If you want an actual, real-world, not projected, not CGI, not in your own little brain, image of what America will look like without police, and this is going to be difficult for people who live in the Pacific Northwest because we have urban road boundaries and we don't really have suburbs, but look at a traditional mid-America suburb. You don't, even, have... you don't even have to go that far from, from where we are here in Oregon. Just over the river in Vancouver, they have traditional suburbs. Yes, true. And you don't see a police... I mean, you see them on the streets from time to time cruising along, but they're not shining their lights in people's yards. They're not hovering over your house with a helicopter. There's no stop and frisk while you're no. walking your dog around your neighborhood. So you may, you may see a police officer from time to time, but it is not a frequent, daily, fear-inducing part of your day. In fact, it's so infrequent that when you see a police officer in a suburb, you immediately become concerned about why they are there. You see thriving and robust after-school programs. You see major community investment you and and not in the terms of the city of such and such has invested a fifty thousand dollar grant into such and such it's actual neighbors and neighborhood associations are actually putting money together to say oh you know we'd like a basketball court for our local park we're gonna build one and here's you know i'm gonna put in a couple hundred my neighbor's gonna put in a couple hundred we're all gonna come together and say we want a basketball court in this park and we're going to make it happen. And it's not just community investment, but also community engagement. When you're looking at these more prototypical suburban communities, the people that live there are more engaged with their neighbors. They're more engaged with their, their local community associations. They're more engaged with every aspect of, of their little microcosm of society. And they manage to do it all while maintaining a very low crime rate and an almost non-existent police presence. So why is that? Well, if you want to look at the typical suburban resident and you control for all other factors, meaning you control for gender, you control for race, and you control for ethnic background, national background, religion, etc. You control for all of that compared to a more inner city resident. And the only major difference you're going to see is educational background and wealth background. I think one of the, the biggest differences that we see outside of socioeconomic statuses between suburban communities and more inner city communities is the the role that the police play in disrupting life cycles within urban communities. We know that urban communities are over-policed. We know that. We know that members of marginalized communities are five to eight times more likely to have routine interactions with the police 
and they're substantially more likely to have those routine interactions go poorly. And the the role that the police play in enforcing that social order that that I've talked about a lot tonight within inner city communities is is heightened because historically those have been the communities that not only have been labeled as dangerous but that have been the most economically disenfranchised they are the communities that are not able to meet their needs and so there is a direct one-to-one correlation between the existence of these communities that society has has kind of shoved off to the margins and the existence of an increased police presence in urban communities. When you're looking at the suburbs, first of all, you can't control for those things that you listed because the simple fact of the matter is that Historically, suburban communities are white communities. That was planned. That was enforced. So when we're looking at these suburban communities, we we know that a large number of, of the suburbs in northeastern states were planned in response to the black migration from the south to the north at the turn of the century from the 19th to the 20th. And we know that those suburban communities were very strictly planned to be white communities. This is where redlining comes into play. And this was a thing that wasn't really law, but it was so codified in social structure that black people were simply not allowed to purchase property, to rent property. There's numerous examples throughout the early and mid 20th century of black people trying to move into homes in in these white neighborhoods and being violently ejected having all of their personal property destroyed in in certain cases in chicago there was an entire tenement building that was burned to the ground displacing numerous white families because a a black family was being allowed to move in and rent an apartment there you mentioned that it was never formally codified, at least in laws, and that is correct. But it was codified by the financial institutions, and I speak to this from first-person experience, because one thing that we were trained at the bank that I worked for, and I'm not going to drop names, is to pre- like you are trained not to redline, because it is such a big deal now, because it is illegal now the practice of redlining and what it stems from and what the name actually stems from is the practice of bank executives actually going to their local map of their their city or you know you you have your your loan officer in an office in this one part of town they're going to have a map of where they are and are not allowed to issue loans for those properties so if someone who is a person of color comes to that mortgage officer and says, we would like a loan to buy this house for $5,000 because that's how much houses used to cost. The officer would look at their map and say, oh, you're on the wrong side of the red line. I can't give you that loan. And so what happens is that that person of color or that family of color is then told, well, this is where you can buy a house. And this is on the assumption that they're even able to get credit in the first place. 
and that they're not being denied credit solely based on their race. And so this practice was absolutely codified in the banking establishment where it was a physical, real-world application where these mortgage officers and these bank executives were actually told, you do not issue lines to black, or you do not issue loans to black people for properties on this side of this line. And the, the color that they used, because that's what they used, was a red permanent marker. So that is where the term redlining comes from, and it is a literal demarcation between where bank executives want white people to be able to live and where they want to keep black people. And that again goes back to our system of policing, because this, again, this myth of black Americans as a dangerous subsection of society has persisted for so long that the the police were centrally located to urban centers and if if we could keep black people from expanding out into white spaces then we wouldn't have to expand police forces we wouldn't have to worry about this myth of crime increasing in the suburbs if these undesirable elements of society were kept out so let's let's talk specifically about what America would look like without the police. When we when we're looking at the police and we're trying to determine what society would look like without them. The first thing that we need to understand is how much of a financial investment the police represent. From 1977 to 2017, state and local government spending on police forces increased from $42 billion to $115 billion. $115 billion just on our system of policing. And we know that there's, there's a history of bad behavior in the police department. We know that there is a history of systemic racism within our police departments. We know that the laws are frequently immoral, and we know that the police are upholding those immoral laws. So when we, when we start talking about this idea of defund the police, or more accurately, police abolition work, what we're talking about is reallocating portions of that 100 $15 billion a year that we spend on our police forces and investing those into other aspects of society that we know address the root causes of crime. When we're, when we're looking at that police budget of $115 billion and we're trying to determine how best to reallocate that, it is calculated that we could end hunger in the United States for $25 billion. So let's take that off the top of that $115 billion police budget. And now the police might have $90 billion, but we have eliminated the need that hunger creates. 
And that is, that is the goal of police abolition work. That is the goal of the slogan to defund the police, is to really look at how we're spending the money available to us and determining whether or not where we're spending that money is doing the most amount of good for society. And I think another component of police abolishment, defunding the police, however you want to describe it, is disentangling them from other forms of emergency response. Absolutely. We don't need someone with a gun and handcuffs and pepper spray showing up to a medical emergency. We don't need someone with a gun and pepper spray and handcuffs showing up to really anything short of active, in-progress, violent crime. You don't need someone with a gun to respond to a store being looted after the fact. You don't need a police response to somebody broke into my car. They're not here anymore, but I I need to report that this is something that happened to my insurance agency, and they're going to require a police report number. And I think this leads into an interesting perspective within police abolition, and that is that even in the context of complete and total police abolition, there is still an agency or, or a organization within the civic structure that is handling things like, oh, I have come home and my home has been broken into and my TV has been stolen and I would like to make a homeowner's insurance claim. Someone is still going to be there to, to be the official documenter of that event to make sure that, you know, the TV is actually stolen, because otherwise who's to say, oh, someone stole my TV again for the 15th time this month. So there will still be that. And when we talk about removing police from emergency medical situations, and, and more frequently, especially nowadays, emergency mental health problems, we we replace that figure, that that uniformed police officer, we replace them with a mental health practitioner. We replace them with someone who is knowledgeable and experienced in handling those situations. And this is something that Eugene here in Oregon has been doing to great effect with their CAHOOTS program. It's an alternative to police response, and it is primarily an emergency medical responder and also a licensed clinical social worker responding to calls that do not need a police presence. And what they have found is that it, it's actually helpful. Instead of, of having these armed people, armed to the teeth, they have handcuffs, they have guns, they have pepper spray, they have tasers, they have a baton, there's a rifle in the trunk everybody knows about. Instead of having somebody that represents a very aggressive threat respond to these calls for someone having a mental health crisis, having someone that can actually meet them where they are and work them into a, a more calm state and help them get access to the resources that they need is infinitely more efficacious. The, the trial program for CAHOOTS was so successful that it was expanded very quickly 
And now a, a similar program here in Portland, the Portland Street Response, is being piloted in a number of small neighborhoods that have historically high rates of, of calls, 911 calls, for houselessness, for mental crises, for all of these, these different situations that just don't require a police presence. And I wanna, I wanna go back to something that you said a minute ago, which is that eliminating the role of the police officer in these situations does not eliminate a response. And I feel like that is always the objection that comes up when we talk about defunding the police, abolishing the police, so on and so forth, is, oh, well, what, what, who's gonna answer the phone when, when I call 911? there's still going to be someone answering the phone. There's still going to be someone responding. It's just that in every projected structure of a post-police society, that person responding is going to be someone who is experienced and knowledgeable on that problem. If it's a mental health crisis, it will be a mental health practitioner responding. If it's you know, like I mentioned earlier, if it's a home break-in, it's going to, you know, that's really not something someone's going to have expertise in, but it's going to be someone whose job is collecting information about that and helping report it to the insurance companies. If it's a domestic violence situation, it's going to be a, a social worker who is there to help diffuse the situation and direct people to the right kind of therapeutic interventions for both the perpetrator and the victim of the domestic violence. And there, there are solutions that are not the police. And there's, there's a police chief in Texas that said it perfectly this summer. We are asking cops to do too much in this country. And that's it. That's mm -hmm. the bottom line. We are asking too much of our police force. And we are expecting good results from people that are not trained to respond to situations. I think a question that is going to be brought up a lot whenever this topic is, is broached is, well, can you imagine, as someone who supports abolishing the police, can you imagine a situation where a police response is appropriate? I am being held up at gunpoint running my bookstore. My bank is being held up and my staff are being held hostage. There is a knife fight happening in front of my house. These are reasonable places for police intervention. But what we're talking about when we talk about police abolition isn't just a reduction of the role the police play. It's a fundamental rethinking of the police as an agency that exists within our society. It is redefining the role that those people play. It is a massive scale back from the $115 billion investment per year that we see right now. I think in the context of what, what kind of situations that happen, um, that police will respond to, we have to look at how those, or, or the ratio that those are related to nonviolent crime, nonviolent active crime, basically where you know you would call 911 and say, there's a knife fight down outside of my house. 
you know, that's that's violent crime. It's in progress. It needs someone who has the means to defuse that situation to respond urgently. What is the ratio that that takes up within an average civic structure? And this is going to be very subjective to different areas and different municipalities. But think of, you know, the the propensity of those crimes compared to all the other crimes that exist. You know, we, we look at crimes of theft, we look at um, motor vehicle crimes. Those are really the bulk of, of crimes that are responded to by police. So the statistics that you're looking for are, are pretty easy to find. A lot of data is from 2017 because it was one of the most recent complete years of data available that has been parsed. But the, the total violent crime rate in the United States was 382.9. So in a population of 100,000 people, 382.9 violent crimes occurred. And the property crimes is, and this is again where we're looking at, is this police response necessary? The property crime rate is 2,362.2 per 100,000 people. So in in a population of 100,000 people, 382.9 people are going to be affected by violent crime, and 2,362.2 people are going to be impacted by property crimes. So there is a gross overestimation of the necessity of police because when we're looking at the types of crimes that actually require a police response, the incidence of that is six times lower than that of property crime. Yeah, 0.004 because we round. But that's the percentage of people in a 100,000 population who are going to be victim of a violent and I think another consideration of who is responding to this is also, is this a violent crime in progress? Or is this a violent crime that someone has encountered and is dealing with after the fact? Well, an, an, an important consideration here, too, is that 98 of those 382.9, I'm going to start saying 383 because 0.9 is so, 98 of those 383 violent crimes is robbery. So, again, need. Mm -hmm. Robbery is violent, yes, because it is usually done with a weapon, but it is a response to a need that is unmet. So when you reduce that from 383 to 285, it's even less than 0 0.004. So it's, it's pretty easy, really, once you start thinking about it and once you start talking about it rationally instead of relying on partisan talking points about why we need the police and start looking at actual data that says mm, maybe we don't. It's it's really easy to see the need for police abolition work and the path to police abolition is where we're at right now. It is, it is the fundamental question ripping through American society right now is what role should the police play in our daily lives? How much of a role should they have? And 
to what extent should we rely on them for the things that we've been relying on them for? So what steps can we take today? What are the things we can do now to move towards no police or, or less police? It's a really good question. What we have seen here in Portland is a really coherent response from some of our city commissioners to, to this question. What does this look like? What does our divestment from the police look like? And it starts with our, our local governments having meaningful conversations and engaging around this idea and saying, where can we take this money from and put it to that's going to make the most good? So here in Portland, the, the response has been, okay, so we're going to take $15 million off the top and we're going to invest that into the Portland Street Response Program so that we are, are building an alternative to the police. And this is really what local municipalities need to be doing. They need to be looking at how they're spending the money that they have and asking, what are the alternatives to this? What are ways that we can spend this money that are going to be more socially responsible? And a lot of that is going to come down to community engagement. Every local government hosts listening sessions and they solicit public input at these meetings. And especially now in the time of COVID, these meetings are done on digital platforms. It is ridiculously easy to participate in them. You don't have to leave your house you don't have to worry about what you look like over much. You can just hop on and, and say the things that you want to say and advocate for the things you want to advocate for. And by getting the public engaged in these discussions that our political officials are having, we can start meaningfully changing the trajectory of, of our future. And those are those are the most concrete steps. Obviously there there are obviously there are more ephemeral steps like voting for progressive candidates for local office so that we have people that are, are well versed in these policy proposals that are in position advocating for them. And if if we can get enough people talking about this and enough people engaging around this in a meaningful way, we start changing public policy. I have mentioned this before, but it's probably worth mentioning again. We can take, we can remove police from the street. They don't need to be patrolling traffic every minute of every day. They don't need to be issuing speed tickets. They don't need to be issuing red light tickets. We have the technology, it's widely used. Um, I go through two red light cameras and a speed trap every single day I go to work. And I've been working at my office now for three months. I haven't had a single flash or anything. But having those more consistently and more thoroughly throughout the area, having those technologies in place will help to reduce the need for police officers driving around aimlessly. And these technologies, they're not emergent. Like no. these, these are well-founded technologies that are already available and we could dedicate a fraction 
of our police budgets to investing in these these automated alternatives to having patrol officers and get the same results because those those officers again aren't stopping crime they might slow me down when i'm driving 10 miles over the speed limit on the freeway and i see them from a mile away i'm going to slow down but they're not going to stop me from speeding right back up that 10 miles per hour as soon as I'm out of eyesight. And by utilizing these technologies, we can net the same results in social control, but without the biased interference of a human being. And I'm about to contradict what you just said in a way, and I'm sorry for that. Um, it's fine. <laughs> the, another thing to keep in mind, especially if you're unfamiliar with red light cameras and radar-based speed cameras is the pictures that they take aren't just carte blanche launched into a system and you get a bill in the mail with your thing. It's still reviewed by a living, breathing police officer and it's still a conventional ticket. You can still appeal it to a judge if you feel it is uncalled for or if you feel that it was wrongfully issued wrongfully issued so there is still that that human check to the balance of these automated machines so there is still the opportunity for bias to influence this but that bias is going to be a desk sergeant sitting behind a computer clicking through a picture it doesn't even have this is this is it doesn't have to be a police officer. Absolutely this not. This can be a civilian function. I, this can be somebody who makes $60,000 a year instead of somebody who makes $220,000 a year. And that reduction in spending from a police budget to a civilian budget is $160,000 that we can invest into community programs to keep kids off the street. It's $160,000 that we can invest into making sure that everybody has food. It's money that we can invest into programs that help people that struggle with their utility bills. So one other thing that the city of Portland did to reduce their dependence on police officers is they completely did away with school resource officers. And since this is a podcast, I will say out loud that I just used air quotes around resource because all that school resource officers do is identify problematic behavior from their perspective of problematic and basically initiate the school to prison pipeline, largely for students of color, largely for students who are poor, students who have behavioral health issues, so untreated mental illness, untreated learning disorders, unaddressed medical needs. And so it's a way to jumpstart getting these people into the prison system and to, to jumpstart dismantling the chance of that student's family from breaking the cycle of generational trauma and generational poverty by destroying that student's chances, even if they do somehow manage to not go to prison, or if they only go to prison for a brief period, 
they're still going to have the trauma of going to prison. They're still going to have that that mark on their record that will follow them for the rest of their life, and they will never be able to fully participate in society. Another thing that Portland has done to start the process of divesting from our, our bloated police budget is to eliminate transit patrol officers. Right now, we have transit officers that hang out at uh, transit stations, they're on our, our MAX trains, our light rail trains, they're on our Portland streetcars, and they basically are just doing fare enforcement, which, again, comes back to criminalizing poverty. And so to kind of revisit that idea of decriminalizing poverty and and eliminating these situations that, that cops don't need to be involved in, our mayor decided that he was going to stop the transit patrol program. And if you want a very easy comparison of, well, if a cop's not doing this job, who's going to do it? Look at any other train in this country. It's a conductor who is wearing a fun little hat. A jaunty hat. And has their fun little clippy clip. And is just making sure that you bought a ticket. And if you didn't, you get off at the next stop. And that's that. No criminal record. No, you know, no guns waving about. And and I think another point to clarify with... Uh, with Portland, Oregon's local form of fair enforcement, I know it varies a lot from place to place. These are not dedicated fair enforcement officers. Any officer, whether it's a city of Portland police officer and Multnomah County sheriff's officers, can board a max and conduct fair enforcement. And I know when we were in Seattle, they were. Um, they were dedicated, uniformed as transit fare enforcement police. Um, and that helps to establish their jurisdiction because those officers have absolutely no jurisdiction outside of transit property. So the, the light rail or the bus itself and the stop. Whereas with Portland's model where you have regular city police or a county sheriff doing this, their jurisdiction extends to the city line or to the county line. And if they, you know, start targeting one person who perhaps doesn't have their fare and they pull them off the train, that's not the end of it. They can continue to harass and continue to target that individual even off of the transit agency's property. And in that specific instance of of removing police fare enforcement, that's another small thing that can be done that can net positive social benefits because instead of spending millions of dollars each year on an armed transit enforcer, we can send that money to our local transit authority and they can use that to reduce fares or to offer tickets to people who experience economic hardship. So these things are all intricately intertwined with each other. What are other steps that we can take? 
So, fun little update on my um, car insurance app is you can actually send them pictures of your accident. Mm. And yes, you still have to have a police report number, but, and I will give this to Portland Police, your car accident provided that no one was injured and that um, there wasn't damage to physical property beyond the two cars or you know, whatever, involved in the accident, or if it was like a hit and run or something like that, again, where no one was injured, you can do your accident report completely online, get your accident number, and then send that to your insurance company with photographic proof that you have taken with your lovely, you know, camera in a pocket, and they process everything. You never have to deal with an officer on site. You don't have to wait for, you don't have to wait for the officer to respond, first of all. You don't have to wait for an insurance agent to come to you and verify the loss of property. So that's actually another step that can be taken to reduce the necessity of the police is by contacting our insurance companies who have decided that a police report is necessary and advocating for them to change their policy. This isn't law. There's no law that says an insurance agency has to receive a report from the police about an accident. That's not codified anywhere. That's just something that they arbitrarily decided on. So if, if we can contact, and, and this goes for any organization that requires any kind of information from the police, if we can contact the people that are, are responsible for making decisions in whatever way we can, through email, through a letter writing campaign, through phone calls to us, the person, we can advocate for them changing that policy so that we can further embrace the divestment of ourselves from the police. Big point of relevancy on changing things to a point that they don't need police verification of an occurrence is... Um, for the Oregon Victims Compensation Fund, which is a way of victims of violent crimes, most often um, sexual assault and rape, to, to offset the cost of supporting them through the after trauma. And that can be everything from medical bills, which I've had to see and deal with firsthand as the other side of it as the, the medical side of it. And it can also deal with lost wages from having to miss work. Pretty much any expense that can be justifiably tied to the crime and the trauma that occurred because of it. And the first thing that they ask for on the application for the compensation is the police report number or the name of the officer investigating the crime. That's a really perfect opportunity for us to influence public policy because that that program the Oregon Oregon Victims Compensation Fund thank you the Oregon Victims Compensation Fund is is a, it started as a political measure somebody in office said we need this and because they're the ones that crafted the program they have the most direct influence on the administration of that program. So again, we can call representatives, we can call our governor's office, we can email these people, we can say, hey, this policy enforces 
an unnecessary reliance on the police. Is there a way that we can change this so that that is not the case? Any other key essential points we should make? All cops are bastards. All cops are bastards. Even your uncle. Especially your uncle. Especially your uncle. Oh, and while we're doing that, because I'll be honest, I was... I was late to the ACAB train. I I was in that group that said, I can't lump all police officers into this statement of all cops are bastards. But I can, and I'll tell you why I can. Because even a good person who is just happens to be selling their labor as a cop took an oath to uphold the laws that they uphold. And when you take that oath, you are pledging your allegiance to a set of laws that are fundamentally biased, that are fundamentally wrong, and that are fundamentally bad. So just because you have a good person, maybe it's your uncle, maybe it's your dad, maybe it's your boyfriend, just because it's a good person working as a cop, that person is still a bad cop. This idea of a good cop simply it doesn't exist. It's a logical fallacy. I because remember... these are people that are are pledging themselves to uphold unjust laws. I remember after George Floyd's death at the hands of the Minneapolis police. It was Minneapolis, right? Yes. Um, after his death at the hands of the Minneapolis police, I remember there was a petition circulated around inside the police force to condemn the actions of that specific cop and, and the other cops who were on scene. And out of the some 900 officers on payroll with MPD, I think it was 14 actually signed it. So the, those there, those are the good cops. That That's it, 14 out of over 900. So the phrase, all cops are bastards, it's true. I think we've just about talked everything we know to talk about police and police abolition work in the United States. So that's going to be our episode for the day. Thank you guys so much for joining us, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this week's social cast. Join the conversation with us on social media. Find us on Facebook under Socialcast Podcast and on Twitter at Socialcast Pod. If you're interested in supporting Socialcast, you can find us on Patreon.